Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hawkeiser Ilkovich. I'm here today chatting with Kate White. She's the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, and she's the New York Times best-selling author of The Gutsy Girl Handbook and also of 13 Novels of Suspense. Kate, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, Julie, thank you. We're so excited to talk to you. Always, we want to start talking about coffee. <laughs> we have to. Um, so what is your coffee drink of choice? Espresso. My husband turned me on to it, <laughs> and I'm addicted now. How many shots of espresso can you drink a day? Or at a time, even? <laughs> <laughs> well, I always have one after lunch, and maybe one in the afternoon. And the shocker is that I have one after dinner at about... 8.30, and no one can understand how I can do that, but I love it so much. I, I don't care if sometimes I have a hard time falling asleep. I was going to say, does it affect your sleep or no? No, and, okay. and, and I alternate espressos with tea. Okay. So that's, I, I would be drink I drink more caffeine than three or four espressos <laughs> imply. So you're just drinking a, a constant IV uh, stream. That's right, that's right. Mainlining it if I could, but since I can't, this is the formula for me. I also can drink espresso or caffeine late. I like a coffee after dinner. Yeah, I, it's, for me, it's so great. Uh, and I, I found actually a, a great technique for falling asleep. I saw it on CBS this morning, and it works so well that I just use that. Oh, and we have to know, what is that? It's called 478. Okay. And it's it's miraculous. And there's a guy who's a sleep expert who talked about it. You, you breathe in for four hold it for seven, then breathe out for eight. But you're supposed to make a little noise when you breathe out. My husband says sometimes I wake him in the night if I might need to fall back asleep. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a ghost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we're going to try that. That's a good... Mm-hmm. We're giving everyone tips for caffeinating, yes. but we never give any tips for right. chilling out. That's so. right. That's about time, Julie. <laughs> it's kind of unfair. It's unfair. Want to start at the beginning of your career. It's been such an incredible career, and we're so excited to talk to you about it. So what are the steps you've taken to get where you are today? So we can start as early as you want in terms of, you know, as a kid, anything you were doing, (laughs) but also, you know, where you went to school and what you majored in, and then your internships. Kind of take us along Mm -hmm. that journey. Well, for me, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was really young. I put out the Orville Street News. You may have heard of it. (laughs) Didn't win a Pulitzer, but came close. A little magazine in high school. And I think the big turning point for me was I wanted to go to New York and write plays and books and work in newspapers, work in magazines. And I even wrote a play in high school that was put on. But I didn't realize psychology sort of have to pick a lane. And so the lane that I picked uh, because I won Glamour Magazine's Top 10 College Women Contest, my lane was kind of picked for me. And I thought, okay, because in those days, Julie, this was in a galaxy far, far away. They didn't have internships, basically. (laughs) So when my college asked me if I wanted to enter the contest, I thought, great, this would be my opportunity if I won to get my foot in the door. Moved to New York, started at Glamour, I loved it. I was a feature writer eventually after working as an assistant, moving up. And then I began to realize you can't make it to the top as a writer. You have to be an editor. So I started editing some things, volunteering to edit them from one of the people I reported to. 
And then probably the best thing I did was go to a small schlocky magazine called Family Weekly, which was like Parade. And there, it, what was great about it was it was an opportunity to really strengthen my strengths. And the number of editors-in-chief that came out of that magazine include, include the editor of Esquire, the editor of GQ, editor-in-chief, that is. Oh, my Sports gosh. Sports Illustrated, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Red Book, McCall's, Me at Cosmo, and several others, Philadelphia Magazine, uh, American Health, because <laughs> you got great skills there. Right, so I, I always tell work. people, figure out a way sometimes to be a big fish in a small pond so you can do tons of work and stretch and go beyond what you might normally do if you were at another magazine where you are, were a small fish in a big pond. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after that, I got an executive editor job back in women's magazines after I was passed over for running Family Weekly and told it was because I was a woman. Oh, wait, you were actually told? By my former, my boss, Art Cooper, who really created GQ as it later came to be, he had left to go to GQ, and he told me afterwards, Kate, you did not get the job. I can't ever admit this, but it was because you were a woman. And they just couldn't see you in, a, in that role dealing with all these publishers from newspapers. So I thought, rather than cry in my beer, I would go <laughs> back into women's magazines and there, where there would be endless opportunities. So that's what I did, and eventually I became the editor of Child Magazine, then Working Woman, which was fabulous, and then McCall's, Red Book, and then finally Cosmopolitan. So oh my it, gosh, it was what a, a journey. It was a fun career, and of course, magazines are not doing what they used to do, right. but I got to be in that field at the height of it when they did things like give you a clothing allowance. Well, that was going to be my question. <laughs> what was it like? when you were there at the height of the glamour. I mean, it really was... At least at Cosmo. A celebrity. You were a yes. celebrity, right? Well, for me, more than anything, it was... You were a celebrity, I guess, yes, because you were treated well. You got a lot of perks. But Cosmo, the reader, was so passionate about the magazine. We had a, a sell-through when I was there in the 70s and 80s, That meaning that the percentage of magazines you put on newsstands were... Um, 70 to 80% of them actually sold. Wow. The industry average was 35%. Talk Magazine did 12%. So that just gives you a little bit of idea of the passion Cosmo readers have. Right. And I loved talking to women who loved the magazine and giving them what they wanted and what they didn't know they wanted. And it was really exciting. And at Cosmo, you would have people like Alicia Keys show up or Ludacris or <laughs> just... Uh, all sorts of people like that. It was beyond fun and exhilarating. Oh, yeah. And just, I wish everybody could have the experience of working for a place that was as fun as that. It's amazing. It really, it must have been such an exciting, exciting time. Yes, definitely. You made a bunch of transitions. And although it was all in the same industry, I mean, you know, we often talk about the jump within a company and then the jumps between a, one company to another. Mm -hmm. Those are so different and can be challenging in different ways. What was your hardest career transition along the way? And you know how have you known that it's the right time to move on and transition? Well, for me, going to Cosmo was the toughest. And you would say, well, gee, you were the editor-in-chief of all these other magazines. You had gradually built up in t terms of how many newsstand copies you had to sell. So 
why was it that scary? But I didn't apply for the job. I just got a call on a Sunday from my boss, Kathy Black, who said, can you come into the office? I was like, oh, oh when your boss God. calls you on a Sunday, right? It is really not a That's good not a feeling. Good and we were out in Pennsylvania, my husband and my kids, and I drove across three states to meet with her. On and Sunday? Wait, the meeting on was Sunday. on Sunday? Yeah, she wanted me to come in that day. And I did say to her on the phone, Kathy, you're not firing me, are you? Because I thought, just do that on the phone. Don't, make me, don't, make, don't make me drive for an hour and a half. <laughs> and she goes, no, Kate, definitely not. She said, I think, I think you'll like this. Why could it wait till Monday? Well, because what had happened, I found out later, is Bonnie Fuller, who was the editor of Cosmo, was being lured away by Glamour. And they were negotiating with her to see if they could get her to stay. But they had already decided, if it gets to a certain point, we're going to bail. And they, they told me later that the board decided, we'll offer Kate White the job. And in hindsight, I realized a couple of people who had owed me something corporate, like a, a... a number that I was interested in what new paper would cost called me up and say hey I finally have that number for you and I'm like oh thanks and then then they said how's your weekend shaping up where are you going to be and I, I thought that's <laughs> odd and now I knew why everyone wanted to because there were right. no cell phones in those days they were just being introduced and no so, one could say on Friday like yeah. Stay in the city this right, weekend. Right. You probably would have. Right. So the, the for me, because I hadn't applied for the job, I had a chance to look at it. But most importantly, I, I really didn't think I was ready for that. I thought it was too much of a stretch. So it really took me getting in there and seeing my early issues so, sold great. Mm-hmm. And it took me seeing those newsstand numbers to realize this was a great fit. And what I always tell women is, you're a bit better fit than you realize. You don't have to be 100% ready. Start before you're ready. Say yes and figure it out. And so that, for me, was a big lesson. And when you ask, you know, how do you know you're ready? I don't, sometimes you don't know. You Mm -hmm. just have to tell yourself that it's important to stretch, that when you're really, really happy in one job, it's often a sign that you're done with it. You don't have anything more to learn. So look for boredom or too much happiness as a sign that it's time for a transition. And then don't be afraid to make that stretch. That's inspiring advice to me, but I'm sure all, to all of our listeners to know, you know, because coming from another editor-in-chief, I'm sure everyone thought, oh, that's such a, you know, easy, glamorous transition. And to know that everyone's scared when they make a transition is really good to keep to keep in your back pocket yeah I always uh, tell the story because I burst in the door to tell my husband you're not gonna believe this what she wanted to see me for today was I'm the new editor of Cosmo and he goes wait I'm going to bed with the editor of Cosmo (laughs) and though he was happy I had all these misgivings and a couple weeks later I could not sleep I was sleeping one hour a night I would fall asleep and then wake up and I was by the window and he rolls over and Betty looks over and it's the our bedrooms on the third floor and he goes don't jump (laughs) but (laughs) the anxiety uh, was high yeah I think women tend to have a fear that they're not ready Mm -hmm. where guys don't necessarily always think that they think hey I'm gonna go in there I'll I'll figure it out right because you were I mean obviously you were ready because of the success you had but also you had 
experience and you had built your career up to this point yeah. but it is very I think that is a trait of women that you would be like oh I don't I don't know if I yeah, can do it right you did it yeah you have a new book the gutsy girl handbook mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about it what it is well it's actually a new version of a book I wrote 23 years ago called why good girls don't get ahead but gutsy girls do and it was a bestseller so just because of the electric climate right mm-hmm. now with women really looking at their careers and seeing the value of speaking up, we decided that it might be time to reintroduce it. And I totally rewrote it and did it in this handbook form. So that's really where it came from. And it just encourages women to be gutsy in that you have to be willing to go out there. You have to raise your hand for opportunities. You have to ask for what you want even if you can come up with a good reason why you shouldn't, because women do get nervous about asking, so they talk themselves out of it, you have to even take the seat at a table that you you're, you walk into a meeting and there's one seat available and you tell yourself, oh, that must be for somebody. No, it's for you. Right. Just grab it. So it's really about going for it. What is your favorite piece of advice? There's probably a lot of them, but what is your favorite piece of advice from this new book? I love this piece of advice because I don't talk about it as much, and it's the importance of destabilization, mm. how you really want to fix things before they are broken. One of the smartest things I ever did at Cosmo was to hear a lot of women, young women, coming in for job interviews, being aware of the fact that they often mention Maxim as one of their favorite magazines. And my staff people told me this too. And Maxim at the time was this really fun magazine for men. And women read it, and they read it because it was cheeky and it had a sense of mm-hmm. humor. And the Cosmo I inherited was terrific, but it wasn't cheeky. It was over the top, but it wasn't what you'd call funny. But I began to see that millennials were, and the later Gen Xers were appreciative of a certain cheekiness in their humor. And so I just decided one day, I'm going to make all the captions this way. I'm going to make, have a couple humor columns. I'm going to give a cheekier vibe to Cosmo. And we really saw a newsstand spike. And what we also found out is Maxim was going to be launching a woman's magazine, toying with that idea, and then they didn't do it because we took their territory. Right. <laughs> so we fixed it before it was broken. And you want to look for opportunities to destabilize. There's a great quote from the former head of Xerox, Ursula Burns, where she she says she loved her staffers who were willing to do that. So you do that on your job. You do it. You look for things that have been done the same way for a long time, and you ask yourself, no one's telling me to fix it, but what if I fix it? And you do that with your career, too. You have to be open to destabilization and disrupting things and being willing to go off on a tangent, start your own company, Julie, <laughs> hello, or just you know, go go for something fresh and new, it, or at least get out of what you're doing and try something. Right. It's such good advice, and I think so many of us are just going, 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 going. We never feel like we even have the moment to stop, think, look around, and make changes right. I think that's really hard yeah one one of the things we're good at so often is being the architects of our jobs and thinking about our jobs and working hard but we also need to be the architects of our own careers and our own success and I really advise 
spending 30 minutes a week just over a cup of coffee or glass of wine by yourself with a notebook or your computer and just saying, okay, how am I feeling right Mm -hmm. now? Am I happy? Is it time for a change? And I'm just kidding myself that it isn't. Often when you find yourself protesting too much about an opportunity, no, I'd never do that. Oh, God, I, I can't believe they that girl did that. I'd never want to do it. That's often a sign that you do want to do right, it. Right, you wish you did. Right, that's right. <laughs> and looking at the envy you feel about others and dire- redirecting it, why do you envy her for going after getting that position? Maybe you don't want that position, but you are ready for a change. Mm-hmm. Are you networking enough? Do your career math. I coined that term just to talk about where in your field, where are the arcs? Where do people hit certain transitions? All these editors-in-chief, at what age did they become editors-in-chief, mm-hmm. the female ones? And I got a little piece of paper, and I started reading their bios, and I discovered most of them had become editor-in-chief by 39, 40, 41. And at this point, I'm 32, and I'm like, wow, there's a window, and I wasn't aware of that window, but if I'm going to do that, I've got to hustle a little bit, Mm -hmm. take some public speaking classes, do things like that. So the time you spend the 30 minutes being the architect of your career, those are the kinds of questions you're asking yourself and the work you're doing, making sure you've got enough mentors and sponsors and stuff like that. And we don't do that. We don't allow ourselves enough time. Really important to do. Yeah, this is – I always learn so much from the guests of this podcast. And I – before this conversation right now, what I what I think I do well is I sit down every Friday and I look at the next week and I mm-hmm. do my schedule and, and, you know, I don't even wait till Monday because I need that picture. But what I don't do is take one giant right, step back, which right. I really should, and that would be a great time for me to do it and look at the big picture. Right. Other people are doing similar businesses. Who's scaling up in a way that yeah. might be interesting for you? Even watching some TEDx talks yeah, and thinking about what is next, it's hard to get too far down the road because everything changes so much. But a little bit, Julie. Yeah, looking, just thinking about it big picture. Well, it's interesting as I think about, like, when do I do that? New Year's? Like, (laughs) literally, you make your resolutions. And this year I have been trying to be diligent because I made limited resolutions and I check in on them. Like, checking in, but not, I mean, maybe, like, once a quarter so far. <laughs> We've had only one quarter. Um, but I think that's great. And it's really about scheduling the time. I right. think for so many of us where it's like mass chaos at all times and literally putting on your calendar, like, do this right. at this time. And that's how I came up with the idea to write the murder mysteries. My kids were young then, but I felt restless at Red Book. I just couldn't explain it. And in hindsight, it was partly because that was not a good magazine for mm. me. It was so buttoned up. And I would find myself in, in situations like on the Today Show. Yes, we did a survey and we discovered. And when I got to Cosmo, it was like the big bodice ripper of a job. Like, I don't have to be buttoned up. I can just be me. It was so great. But it was at one of those little kind of sessions with myself with coffee and a notebook that I I thought, is there some girlhood dream that I don't want to let go of because I'm running out of time? And I suddenly realized I don't want to let go of the idea of writing a murder mystery. So I started doing it Saturdays and Sundays before my kids got up. Um, Yeah, so tell us about that evolution. So you were a magazine writer and you Mm -hmm. love writing since you were a child. Um, How... 
you know, how did that actually happen? So you, how much time did it take to write and also raise a family and have a job at the same time? Like that was essentially your side hustle. I don't know yeah. if we used those words right. at the uh, time. Yeah, but well, I, how... I called it plan B back then because <laughs> it's precarious to be an editor in chief. And I got out without being fired. I got to leave on my own terms, but you didn't know that. And you could be good and get fired. So I always wanted a plan B. What I did was I decided when I was at Redbook, feeling restless, that one step I could take was to write these mysteries. I also did something else that I I think is a good piece of advice. I just knew I had to kind of get out in the world a bit. And Kathy Black had started as a head of Hearst magazines. And we were doing a big management conference. And we were put in teams, and I was on a team that was supposed to come up with a magazine idea and pitch it. And no one wanted to have to work too hard on that, so I came up with an idea, and then I volunteered to present it. And I think that day was when she saw me in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so that was great. But So I also write four chapters of a murder mystery, and I think this is great. I love the sound of it. I haven't talked to my agent yet. But I'm, I'm going to go for it. Then, then Cosmo Sunday happened. I got that call from Kathy, come in. We want you to be out of Cosmo. So part of why I had mixed feelings about it, besides not feeling ready, was I thought, oh, there goes the mystery. Right, you you're, know you're going to be so busy, right. and that dream is... But then over Christmas, which was six months or five months after I got the job, I had a few days off. I took out the four chapters from a drawer... And the dead nanny that I had written about had been found on a copy of Cosmo, which I did not remember writing. Because Cosmo wasn't really on my radar so much. So I thought, okay, this is a sign. (laughs) I'm going to take this as a sign. (laughs) And so what I did was started writing a little bit after getting in. I would drop my kids off from school, car service days, and uh, write and I would write on Saturdays and Sundays before they got up, or sometimes I'd let them watch a little TV because they couldn't watch it during the week. But it, I, in the beginning, I had to write only a few minutes a day. And what I would, that's because what I always tell people, and I mentioned this in the book, it's important to sometimes slice things down in small enough increments so you'll do them. I learned this from a time management expert that we sometimes don't do tasks we really want to do because we've made them so daunting. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, I wrote for only like 15 minutes a day. And that was doable. Right. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. It's just, you know, so many women I talk about, I talk to who like need a creative outlet. That's kind of one of the things. And I think a lot of us, and especially, I, you know, I'm a new mom. A lot of new moms were like, we don't have time for that. And mm-hmm. honestly... For me, I have this podcast, and it's so fun, and I love it. I talk to interesting people, and I use a different muscle of my brain, right, and I think it right. makes me better at my job, a better mom, a better you know wife. Um, but I think getting over that hurdle of starting is the scariest yes. part. It's interesting because my yoga instructor was telling me once that she also does aerobics, and she said the people who sign up after the Christmas holidays for three sessions a week are less likely to be there in May than the ones who sign up for one session. Made it too daunting. Right. 
But I would say in terms of side hustles, because I obviously had a successful one, is that you don't want to cheat on your main job. Right. That you will you will regret it because yeah. they will smell a rat, they'll you'll be distracted, you won't be all in. And also there are some great companies to work for that provide you with so much. Don't romanticize the idea of a side hustle if you haven't really been able to show as you did. Look, I can really make money doing this. Mm-hmm. I can scale up. There, there's real opportunity. You need to check that out. Maybe even volunteer, do it on the side for a while to make sure it's viable. Yeah, someone gave me the advice, and I know I've said this on the podcast before. They were like, you'll know when it's time. So don't push yourself to leave your job and start, you know, or or spend all your time at your job. They said, you'll feel when you have done the side hustle for, you know, enough and have developed enough because it's always like, when when do you leave? When do you leave? And you did yours on the side to some degree, right? Yes. Yes. See, so you knew and you you realize I like it. Yep. I'm not going to be bored or frustrated with it. There's opportunity here. Yep. It's important to, to do that. Yeah. And then you kind of had a sense... And, you know, did, did you have a sense when it was time to go? Because it was like, okay, I know this is what I want to do. I feel like it's stable enough. I feel like... Well, for me, it was more of an age thing. Okay. That I felt at a certain age, my magazine days, even though I, I had survived all those years, that, look, you don't see editors-in-chief of hmm. a certain age that much. There aren't that many. So why don't I leave when I'm at the top of my game as opposed to being thrown out and we know what it's like with it's like a guy who ditches you even though you've been thinking of breaking up with him all of a sudden you're feeling bad even though you didn't really like him and I thought I don't want to be in that situation I I want to leave this great job when I feel really good about it and while I still have the time to do something on my own professionally so for me a lot of it was an age thing Mm -hmm. was there a tipping point though when you were just like made that decision because it has to be so hard I think Uruguay having the home in Uruguay and wanting to spend more time there and really feeling frustrated just being able to go a few weeks in the winter and a few things like that Mm -hmm. were tipping point factors now that you've been writing full-time for a while and you know you've had the experience of your career there are a lot of people who want to pursue writing full-time so Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for our listeners who have a passion for writing and either, you know, want to pursue it as a career or even just want to pursue it as something fun to do or to do on the side? Well, first of all, you've got to figure out which kind of writing. Is it nonfiction? Is it fiction? And then I think it's so important to look at the marketplace. I just saw something interesting that Jessica Knoll, who worked for me, who wrote Luckiest Girl Alive, and I adore her, and she was nice enough to mention me in her book. <gasps> she said in this wonderful piece she did for the Times that everyone should click on this. It's it was an op-ed page page piece called "I Want to Be Rich and I'm Not Sorry." What she said is that she researched the field before she wrote her book. She saw what kind of suspense novels and women's novels are selling. Mm-hmm. In fact, she actually sent me. Some uh, email I had sent her where I told her all the books I thought she should read before she wrote her novel. And she read them all. And she told me that made a difference for her. So research, see what the world is looking for, not just what you want from the world. 
because the mistake sometimes people make is just to do what they want to do. And I think with writing, it helps to see if there's a market for it. Mm -hmm. Unless you just want the experience of writing it, you're going to self-publish it. Right. I think that's one of the most important things you can do. And then really try to pick a lane. What's going to be your brand as a writer? If it's nonfiction, is it business or motivational or is it health? And you see the success of people who sort of stay on brand. And if it's fiction, you need to have, ideally, if you want to be a successful brand, you look at the authors who are, they tend to stay within a certain genre. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a guy I'm friends with who is a, a thriller writer named Harlan Coben. He's probably written 60 million books, sold 60 million books. He isn't just a thriller writer. He writes domestic thrillers. Mm -hmm. I, I don't don't think that sounds very creative on the one hand, but smart people do it. Lee Child, who writes the Jack Reacher books, told right. me that part of why he made Reacher do what he did was that other male heroine, heroes in thrillers didn't have the same profile. He mm -hmm. tried to do something unique. So think about that and what's going to be your lane. Right. And it, all the things you're saying is like really using a little bit of a business mind with right. the creative mind right. to, if you want to be successful and you want to be commercially successful. Yes, and you don't always get that advice in writing classes. Right. It's, you just write what you want to write. I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have had a lot of success. I will listen to you for my writing. <laughs> <laughs> New York Women in Communications has a new platform, Women Heard, and it's really a platform and opportunity for women to share their their voices about their career struggles, their career advice. It's about women helping women to get what they need in the workplace to succeed. And it's about breaking down the glass ceiling. And, you know, we have been having conversations on this podcast about women and their careers. And so many wonderful women have spoken to us candidly. And we are, you know, expanding those conversations mm. with this Women Heard campaign. So now we'll talk about a little bit, you know, more career, general career-focused stuff um, for women working in the communications industry. Let's start about talking about finances, mm -hmm. 401ks. <laughs> this is my my passion. I am obsessed about talking about budgets and finances and women talking about this stuff openly, which really has been a platform of mine because I feel like so many of us don't. And opening up, even just with my friends about it, I think has been life-changing. Um, you know, we're told we should put money in our 401ks and that we should skip our morning lattes and bring our lunch to work and, you know, do all these things. What are your tips for just putting ourselves in a better space financially? I really think it's about saving. Mm -hmm. I heard a woman say once, and I th thought this was kind of interesting advice. She was a cute, very feisty money expert self-defined money expert but I said to her don't you think it's crazy women spend all this money on their lattes and she said yes but if that latte that you buy at Starbucks really energizes you and makes going to work special and you've got this great ritual that really kickstart your day kickstarts your day why not do that and I think there's a point to that but one of the things that really influenced me early on in my life when I first started at Glamour there was a girl who was on safari when I started my job. 
and everyone said, oh, Kathy's on safari. She's coming back. And she, she came back and she was so glamorous and interesting. And I was just in awe of her. And I assume she was wealthy, that right. she inherited some money <laughs> from somebody, had a trust fund. And one day she had me come over to her apartment and she was a couple years older than me. And I was just gaga about her. And I finally had the nerve to ask her because I heard she'd been to the Yucatan the year before. And I said, Kathy, do you mind my asking, how can you afford to do those trips? And she said, I have a little money taken out every single week and put into, in those days, it was a passbook savings account. <laughs> but that's how she traveled. Yeah. The next week I did that. And a year later, I was off to San Francisco and Hawaii for two weeks for my vacation. And my father told me, save for retirement when I was in my 20s and I thought what you know why would I ever do that now but my husband is a saver too we married we socked it away we invested and we are financially in a fabulous situation we have a home in Uruguay a home in Bucks County Pennsylvania home in New York and we really have the freedom to do what we want because we didn't live so far above our means. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love the woman, uh, woman Nellie Galan, who wrote Self Made, and that's her big thing. Do not live uh, above your means, live below your means. And I wouldn't say I was living below my means in some huge right. way, but I I socked it away. We, we just had formulas for what we were gonna sock away. So I would just say to everyone listening, do that, you will not regret it. The, the stock market is a great way to invest if you're in it for the long game. Mm -hmm. But diversify, and those things will pay off for you one day. And it's hard to see when you're in your 30s. or, but And particularly when it's a stretch to do that, but you will be so glad you did. It's, I mean, it's the it's the main advice. New York Women in Communications, they had a panel um, with Bloomberg and Fidelity about personal mm -hmm. finance. and. It was very interesting. Um, I sat on the panel, and there was a young woman who was in her early, early 20s talking about this. And I think it was really impactful for her to hear and for all the young women in the audience to hear, like, you need to be thinking about retirement yeah. now. Cause yeah, 25. You don't think about it. And the one thing we talked about in that panel is, like, you can't afford that. So that's something, especially living in New York. And when I worked mm. in magazines in New York, it was like, sex in the city time, you know, maybe a little bit later, but it was just like, you spent money and didn't have the thought of like, can I afford it? Right. Which is, sounds crazy for me to say this out loud, like that sounds insane, but it really was, you just spent, and I've had friends tell me like, oh no, my monthly budget is like above my income. It's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you can't don't afford do it. That. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I so. think also, this may be terrible to say as someone who ran a magazine where fashion was an important component. I think fashion is just can be a curse for young women because they feel they have to keep up. It's ridiculously expensive. They they change the styles constantly, so you buy more. And I never gave into that. I really didn't. For me, I bought art is what I bought. Oh, interesting. And I really feel, to me, that was so much more important than buying important jewelry or anything like that. That was not on my list of stuff I, that I wanted. So that that's very interesting. I'd love to hear more about being a magazine editor, 
who didn't invest in fashion. So how did you, what did you wear? And how did you decide what to wear? Fortunately, I had a clothing allowance. (laughs) A lot of the women who were executives in the company, they, they wore really great jewelry. To me, I would rather have a George Kondo painting than a, you know, a huge pair of diamond studs. Mm-hmm. To me, that was just a trade-off because that's an investment because it's really a terrific investment and it helps you diversify. And it also means you're just not giving your money to something that's, um, you know, particularly not so much with jewelry but with fashion. It's, it has no value in right. the long term. It's not an investment either. at like, all. Of course, you could sell a few things on eBay right. perhaps and <laughs> get the tax write-off when you – bring them in to give them to goodwill but other than that so I haven't we haven't talked about this podcast yet but I have had a like a fashion revolution so I really sat down I've never wanted to spend a lot of money when I started my business I did not buy any clothing for years like I just did not that was one thing Mm -hmm. I had to cut out of my life I did not have now my company is in good shape and I wanted to think about what do I want to do about that? Because I can't not buy clothes for 20 years. So I listened to every woman's magazine I've ever read and created a capsule collection for myself. So I only own a few things, but what's revolutionized fashion and just hearing you talk about it is Rent the Runaway Unlimited. Oh, wow. I have Rent the Runaway Unlimited. I rent, you know, I look at my calendar again for the week and I say I have this event and this event. I rent, and then I own my own jeans, my own T-shirts, you know, a few blouses. It's it's changed my life. It really has. Really? And do you, is it always, the, does, is the size true to your size? So you feel, how often do you have to send something back and say that? And you, Yeah, you definitely, I mean, it's exactly, it's not ideal, and you can't all tailor anything, which is not mm-hmm. good. So for me, I'm short, like, I don't rent a lot of pants, because I just can't wear pants for, like, a normal size woman. Um, but I... Um, or an average size woman, I should say. Um, but I wear I um, the clothes often fit beautifully. Like yeah. I had a dress yesterday, I put it on, had a work event, really beautiful. And I just would never have bought it because yeah. I wear it t- once and I see all the people I need to at work and then can't wear it again. Right. The other thing I think is great because I do like clothes, but I found over time that if you buy really good clothes and particularly if you can say I'm not going to buy a lot but what I buy are a few designer pieces Mm -hmm. really they last forever I I have Prada things that are that still look great I feel and there might be some people that realize oh that's nine-year-old old Prada but I don't care I love them and before I left Cosmo when I knew I was leaving the person who I worked with as a stylist I said to her I dropped her a hint that I was leaving. I said, I just everything I want, I want to be classic. So it's pencil skirts and pick stuff that's like a, I'm a French woman living in a arrondissement in Paris, <laughs> and I just want to look classic. Right. And so I think that's part of it too, is it's not that you can't have nice things, but be smart about, about them. Don't buy over-trendy stuff. If you buy the best things you can afford, and mix and match them is really such a smart way to do it if you if you can pull that off. Yeah, I have a friend who's a buyer at Saks, and that I learned from her. She owns like 
she always is wearing the same thing, but it's very chic and really good quality, and it's always the same look. I mean, that's a whole other phenomenon now is the work uniform, that some people are wearing the same thing every day to work, um, almost to go to the other end of the spectrum, so like you just don't have to own pretty much anything. Um, and if you're wearing the same thing, no one's like, oh, you wore that last week. It's like, you wear that every day. Oh, that's interesting. Give me an example of a work so there was an article a couple years ago about a woman who worked in an, in the art department of a magazine, and she wore black pants and a white button-down and a necklace every day, every single day. So, you know, own a few of those. Yeah, really. I had an art director who did that. It was a guy, but he wore every single day. Maybe she'd work for him. Yeah, I'm like, maybe she'd learn. He, he wore khaki pants, a white shirt, and they always had a tie, but the tie was pulled so that it was loose oh yeah that was his look every single day i think he did change the ties and he always had a fresh white shirt but that was cool because he didn't have to overthink it then right and i mean mark mark zuckerberg is like the one who who really is using we know he started that trend he's not using his brain to think about only only when he's testifying in front of congress he has to whip out the suit he dressed appropriately for that one one day in the journey of your career, was there a sign or experience that helped you realize that you were on the right path? Or do you not feel like that exists? Was there a moment where you were really like a light bulb went off and that was it? I would say that the times that's happened is when I really felt I love what I'm doing right now. There was actually a time when when I was working at that schlocky family weekly, (laughs) God bless it, but Art Cooper, who was my fabulous boss, goes to GQ, and I'm put in charge of running the magazine until they find somebody, and I'm told I'm a candidate. I had booked a trip to the Arctic Circle. I couldn't, I had to cancel it because it was three weeks. And even then, they said, there's not always a chance if you get stuck in ice, you'll make it back in three weeks. I thought, this is not going to be good for me as a candidate. Right. So I canceled that. And... I started doing the job and I was really nervous, but one day as I was leaving the office, I realized, oh, I'm so excited. I was wild about it. And that was the sign. Okay, you thought this would be a little scary, but you love it. And to me, if you get that dopamine rush, that's that's a good clue. Mm-hmm. I would say there are probably people who have ne- not had that because on the path, they may have to do some pretty crummy jobs to get to where they want. My former brother-in-law, a great guy, he was a lawyer, and I remember some riding in a cab with him once, and I said, hey, do you, do you like what you, you like in what you're doing? He goes, oh, it's dreadful. He was cut, uh, proofreading some long draft and said how off it was. He eventually got a job. He spoke, learned Chinese, got a job at the branch in Hong Kong of his law firm and then another law firm and then eventually became ambassador to China for eight years so that was a job he loved but he probably didn't always like what he was doing so that's tricky Mm -hmm. because though then you can't tell you're not getting the dopamine rush and I would say then probably the best thing is to just sort of have a sense of where you're going and just, just do you envision yourself in the next step or the one after that, getting to a better place. But mm-hmm. you don't want to do something you don't like for too long. Right. You have to do that every day. <laughs> right. And then if you've gone down the wrong road for too long, 
and it doesn't lead where you want, it's really hard to dig yourself out and start again. We have reached our lightning round. I'm going to just shout something out and just give me your first response. So the best job you've ever had. Without a doubt, Cosmopolitan. That was an easy one, right? (laughs) What's the worst job you've ever had? Working as a dental assistant when I was in high school. (laughs) I hated the line, Miss White, could you get me the bone file? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. What's the best career advice you've ever received? Ask for the business at the end of a job interview. Come right out and say, I love the sound of this job. I like it even more than I thought. I would love to work here. I'd love to be given the chance to do that. It's great. It's great advice. What's the worst career advice you've ever received? My parents telling me to go into teaching because it was there was plenty of security. Oh, my God. Oh, they must have been very proud of you, though, the path that you took. <laughs> what is your most memorable office moment? What's something that happened in the office? There must have been a lot of them, especially at Cosmo, that was just so incredibly memorable. I remember one time somebody from corporate came over and was meeting with me and the managing editor and there was this huge raucous sound like a a shelf had fallen off in the next office and then it happened again the managing editor went to see what 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 was going on it turned out a couple staffers were get doing uh get kind of getting into positions to see for the kama sutra guy we were doing (laughs) and they were just there was one was gay and one gay man and the other was a straight woman so it wasn't inappropriate but they were doing this stuff and they'd fallen down oh and God. I thought oh my gosh if the corporate guy had any idea I just oh they just dropped some things off the shelf but then later she tells me you're not going to believe what that sound was it's a workplace hazard yes really Cosmo. That's right. we're going to ask you our classically annoying interview questions so these are the questions that People are asking at interviews that often seem just senseless, but um, you may have asked some yourself or been asked some, but I'll ask you these questions and you can answer how you genuinely want to answer or you can give me the answer you think people should give since usually there's like an answer people are wanting. Um, The first question is, why did you leave your last job? Because... I've got this outdoor cat part of my personality and I wanted the freedom to be on my own. Perfect. Great. You're hired. (laughs) Where do you see yourself five years from now? Still doing something I love, whatever it is. Tell me about a challenge you had and how you solved it. I would say the challenge for me most recently has been leaving a job where I had all these people reporting to me and going to be someone who writes suspense novels and other types of writing how do I get the vibrancy and the interaction and the fun of working with people and doing a lot of public speaking helps solve that problem. And do you, this is not a classically annoying question that just sparks something in me. Do you find time management much more challenging when you're having to manage your own time in terms of writing versus like you probably had a ton of meetings and struck more structure not so much because when I was in my 20s I had a terrible time management problem with procrastination and so what I did was I I did articles on time management so I could interview the experts which (laughs) was very helpful and because I wrote my fiction on weekends and early in the morning I had learned to train myself how to keep my ass in the chair how not to get up and 
cut the pad under the rug because it was sticking out (laughs) because it was annoying me and doing things like that or cleaning out my wallet in the middle of the morning. And so I'm pretty good at that because of all those time management articles and practicing it for years. Because that's a challenge for a lot of people. Sometimes when I have the whole day free, I get less done right. than when I have 15 right. minutes well, between you, you must have to do it as, as the boss of your own company, right? Oh, yeah. What's your secret? I'm very organized. I think that's my secret. And actually, that's not the secret. That's just a trait, planning. Like, I, you know, I really think ahead and I plan out and I don't um, once I have the plan I don't let myself get off course but mm-hmm. I think if you don't think ahead it's very easy to you know and I also work with the people around me to say I'll do whatever you need but it needs to be a little organized if you need me to work on this project right. with you and you know what's going to happen in two days just tell me so I can plan and that everything's not like constant chaos right the other great thing Julie Morgenstern told me that this she's a productivity expert only look at email certain times of the day oh. that you just if you go back and forth and keep looking it really drains so much that's great advice and I'm like almost to a fault to a fault good at not looking at emails like I will look <laughs> at it in the morning and then the end of the day but I don't see email as like my emergency place people know how to reach me they have my cell phone so I am very good at stepping back and I think that email is like the biggest time suck. I'm oh, telling yes. you, if I could get rid of, if I had a, if there was a world where you didn't have to email. But even more of a time suck is the time that you take to look up from your page or whatever yeah. you're working on and then go to email that it takes time for your brain to get back to the other yeah. activity. So you're, you're using up far more time than you would if you just set email action to certain times of the day right yeah I, I like I like doing things in blocks so shut down the email that's great do something in a block even if it's like checking my text messages I'm like not a constant pinging I'll be okay I'll look at that in an hour the last back to the interview questions the last one we always like to grab these crazy interview questions that companies are asking now <laughs> that you're like what does that have to do with anything this one comes from Amazon and when I read it, I was just like, I can't believe I'm even going to say this out loud. How would you solve problems if you were on Mars? What? I, I think I would answer, I don't think I'm a good fit for this company <laughs> if you're asking a stupid, ridiculous question like that. What? Can you imagine saying an interview? I would think I would just like look at them. I can't, I took me, when we were putting together the questions, and I got this from the producer, uh, I'm like, it took me five minutes uh, to even understand what the question means. And, and is it... <laughs> Who's asking that question? Do you know? Amazon. So oh, people Am- at Amazon, oh they're God. doing asking that question if you're interviewing for a job. That's very hot in that world. Yeah, and, I could see you oh have gosh. some clever answer. I, I would not have been hired by Amazon, clearly. <laughs> I, I couldn't even get reading the question. I couldn't get past. So tell us something about yourself that we won't find on your Wikipedia page. Probably that I'm a really avid bird watcher. Oh. I really love it. In part... And this is a good time management tip. I didn't have any hobbies when my kids were little. And I thought, what a loser. And I can't paint. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. But my son really seemed to love birds. And he had a good eye. So I thought, what if I encourage him to have this hobby? And I, it becomes my hobby, too. 
and we're both now very avid bird watchers, so it's fun. I love that. And my husband and daughter jumped on board too. Oh, so everyone. Yes, yes. Where where's the best place for bird watching? Well, we've done the Amazon, we've done Antarctica, we've done Alaska, we've done Africa, we've done Chile and Argentina and all through Central America. I just there are lots of great places to see birds. Oh, that's such And including so your own backyard if you get a bird feeder. Even New York City? Well, I don't put a bird feeder up here because rats would come right. instead. <laughs> <laughs> but Central Park has great birds. Wow. Really great migrating birds. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to go over there with a pair of binoculars. How important do you think it is for young people to who are early in their career to have a hobby? Do you think it's important or do you think you should stay as focused as you can? I think it's great to give your brain a break. And you might do that by reading. You might do it by watching Killing Eve, uh, which is my obsession now on BBC America with Sandra Oh. It's so fabulous. But however you give yourself a break so that your brain can recharge, solve problems when they're not actually, it's not actually engaged in that problem. It loves to work on it when you give it a break. So do that. Let's wrap up by you telling us your favorite book. <laughs> We're dying to know what is what's your favorite book right now. Maybe favorite favorite book of all time and favorite book right now because it's probably too hard to choose. I would say it's hard to say my favorites because I've loved so many, but the one I tend to reread the most, and I reread a lot, is *The Dead*, the novella by James Joyce. I really love that. It's so heartbreaking. And there's something about it that's so powerful and what it says about we don't we can't really ever know completely the person we love. Mm -hmm. And actually a book I like right now that I just finished is the Tina Brown Vanity Fair Diaries. Oh, if you are so interested good. I in media, read it. you really should read this book because of course she's writing about the height of magazines and magazine business is uh oh in big trouble. But it's still really interesting to see how her mind worked and very fun. And she went to so many good dinner parties. <laughs> Hate her for that. <laughs> what a life. Oh, my gosh. That's a great recommendation. I'm dying to read it. Thank you so much. Thank you, this Julie. This was so fun. I am just so thrilled to get to meet you. But it's been such a treat to talk to you. And the advice you've given is so valuable. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media? Well, uh, katewhitespeaks.com is my website for any kind of career books or career information or speaking, but katewhite.com is for mysteries. Kate M. White is Twitter. Kate White Author is Facebook, Instagram. I forget what that is, but uh, I'm we'll there. I'm there. And mostly I'm just uh, out and about sometimes or, or up in my office working. <laughs> Well, definitely tweet at Kate, find her on her website, buy her book. Um, and this, thank you again. This was such a fabulous conversation. If you want to learn more about this podcast, you can follow New York Women in Communication on Twitter at NYWICI, or you can find all of the episodes of this podcast at NYWICI.org. That's NYWICI.org slash podcast. And we have links to listen. And rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. 
thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Cassandra Zay, Kylie Harris, Elizabeth Roberts, Mandy Carr, Andrea Goldstein, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. 